Hear the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, how patient endurance, how your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Holy Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for this word that you give to us to bless us that we might know you. I pray that you would encourage, strengthen our hearts, strengthen our bond together as we meditate on the things of God. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. In uh, October of 1999, uh, PGA golfer Payne Stewart and his friends boarded this plane this private Learjet in Orlando, Florida, headed for Dallas, Texas. And if you would have been on the runway when, this, uh, was, when you saw these, these people get on this plane, you, you might have marveled at this, this beautiful jet. Uh, it's, it's precision craftsmanship, the way it could cut through the air like butter as you watched it just take off and, and cut in the air. You probably would have wished you were on that plane, enjoying it. But despite the beauty of this uh, plane, and despite its, its appearance, something was deeply wrong with this craft. Because shortly after takeoff, something that is still unknown to this day caused uh, the, the cabin to depressurize and the emergency systems failed. And a few minutes into this flight, everyone had passed out and lost consciousness. And, but the autopilot was on on this plane, and so this, this plane continued to fly in the air, this ghostly Voyage until finally it crashed into a field in North Dakota. Although this plane looked good on the outside, passing inspections even, something was devastatingly wrong on the inside of it, leading to the death of everyone on board. And I think this is an, an apt story to tell us that this warning that Jesus gives to this church here in Ephesus. It's easy to look good on the outside, but to have something devastatingly wrong with you on the inside. It's easy to make ourselves look good. We know how to play the game, to smile, to say the right things, to be polished, to, to look good on the outside, to show up Sunday after Sunday, to give our money, to read our Bibles, and yet a life that was once zealous for the Lord has grown cold. Maybe, maybe you're here and that's you this morning. You know the theology. In fact, if I put an exam in front of you, you could pass the theology exam. You, you, you might even be able to, to know and tell when, when there's false teachers, but, but there's no longer love in your heart. 
Or you know the theology that Jesus saves sinners, but you have forgotten that you're his beloved. Your life, so to speak, is, is on autopilot. You're just going through the motions until finally one day you might crash and burn. You know, if I'm honest with you, as I've meditated on this text and read this text, uh, this is a hard thing for me personally. It's easy to just get your life on autopilot, but you actually let your love grow cold. This is the temptation of our particular tradition in the Christian world of the Presbyterian Reformed tradition to major on theological precision at the expense of love. This is our temptation. And my guess is I'm not alone in feeling this at times, that our hearts grow cold. I imagine you feel this too. It's not a bad thing to, to feel this. Remember, Revelation is a book that comes to us. Jesus tells us that we might hear it and be blessed by it. Jesus brings you this news, even these hard words, that you might be blessed. He's in, in, in this, he's not going to tell us you have to choose between theological precision and, and our hearts. But he's going to tell us, listen, he wants both of those from us. He demands both of his people. And so Jesus gives this letter to John to send to the church in Ephesus that they might continue their theological precision and also that they might return to their first love. Jesus reminds them, listen, although your love has grown cold, my love for you has not grown cold. I'm still in your midst. I'm still pursuing you, still tending to your flame that you might burn brightly. And so as we look at this letter this morning, I think we're just going to notice two things. The two things are these, that one, that Jesus praises the church for their intolerance. Jesus praises the church for their intolerance. And second, that Jesus pursues the church for their intimacy. Jesus pursues the church for their intimacy. So first, Jesus praises the church for their intolerance. Jesus praises the church for their intolerance. Look with me back here at verse 1 to set this up. He says, the angel, to the angel of the church in Ephesus... So the first thing we notice is, is the audience of this uh, letter. It's being written to the Ephesian church. And one thing to note about this church is that the apostle John once pastored this Ephesian church. You know, church history tells us this, this is where he was preaching and teaching uh, when he actually got arrested and sent off to, to the island of Patmos. And, and so, it was, so this, was a, this was a people he was very familiar with. This is probably the, the, the people that he's writing to that he knew the most about. He knew them. He taught them. And so as he's writing down these first words that Jesus gave him, he must have been delighted to hear, oh man, they, they can see false teachers. They love the truth. How amazing uh, this is. They're doing well. This would be like hearing from someone else that your children are doing well outside the home. Uh, and this is how Jesus begins in verse two. He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Jesus is praising these people for their works, their works of patient endurance, which he calls toil, which means this wasn't easy. This was hard work, but they were enduring. They were, they were doing the good and hard work of enduring, and, and what are they enduring through? But they're enduring through these false teachers that are coming, saying that they're from God and proven to be false. Uh, there were some in their midst who were, says that, tells us they're self-appointed apostles, which means they're appointing themselves to speak on behalf of God, but they found them to be false. They exposed them as, as fake. So how did they know? How did they know that these guys were actually false apostles? Well, it tells us here that they tested them. Uh, this church knew well the scriptures. 
They were taught well by John and they remembered their training. They knew the scriptures so that they tested these men based on the teaching that has been passed down to them from John himself. And these men were found lacking. They were found false. And Jesus agrees with this church. that men, you, your assessment of these men is right. And he praises them for this vetting process. You know, this, this kind of vetting, training, testing kind of reminds me of even our own ordination process within our tradition, right? To, to be ordained, to be a pastor in our tradition, you have to take written exams. You get tested on, on Bible and theology and history and sacraments and our book of church order. Not only does it take hours to get through these exams, but you, you get orally examined too and people ask you questions uh, and you have to actually answer these questions. Uh, and it's, you know, people spend, you know, year, at least usually a year to get through all these, all these tests. It's intense. So why is this process so intense of testing training? Because we don't want false teachers, people that teach falsely in our midst. We want this people that have, are, are teaching the same truths that have been passed on from generation to generation to us. So we have to be tested to find out. And one thing to note, though, is, you know, these false teachers are not just people in different Christian the, theological camps that we just disagree with on lower-tiered things. This is not what's happening. But the false teachers here, and false teachers used typically in Scripture, are those who deny the essentials of the faith. That Jesus is the Christ who died and rose again, right? They're denying the essentials of the, the faith that Jesus is the one true son of God who died and rose again, fully God, fully man, the truths of the apostles' creed. This is what they're ultimately denying, that he is the only way to salvation. And this is what, also what Jesus says in verse six of this people. He says, yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus actually names some of the enemies that they're dealing with for us. And Jesus commends them for not following these teachers, for actually hating their works. And this group, the Nicolaitans, will come up in more detail in other letters, so I won't touch on it much here. Uh, but one thing that they were doing is they were leading the people into great sexual immorality, which functionally promoted salvation through the pursuit of pursuing pleasures. And Jesus doesn't hold back when encountering this kind of falsehood. He says, I hate it. And the Ephesian church hates it, and this is good. Because we should despise anything that leads people away from the truth that Jesus alone offers salvation to us. Which, you know, whenever we think about God hating, it, it doesn't hit our modern ears very well, does it? God doesn't hate, does he? I thought, I thought he was love. God is love. How can God be love and also hate? Especially when you think about John, the, the writer of this. Uh, he was the one that wrote to us all the good stuff about love, God being love, our need to love, brotherly love. He's, he's known as the apostle of love. So is he really writing about Jesus hating here? Well, yeah, he is. What is he talking about? Well, I think if anything, what this, what this does is it helps teach us more about what love actually is. I think we're taught to think that love and hate are polar opposites of each other. But what we learn here is that they're not. That hate is actually an aspect of love. Uh, maybe more than that, your love in life will actually guide your hate. Your hate flows out of your love. It's an overflow of it. Your, your hate is birthed from your loves. This is one of the reasons why we're so defensive of our children, right? And other loved ones. Because we love them, we hate anything that, that tries to do harm to them. And because God loves his children, he hates it when people try to go into his church and steal his people. 
So what this teaches is actually hatred actually flows from our loves. It's not the antithesis of love. And he hates it when people try to steal his bride from him. Why? Because he loves us. And Jesus praises them that they're testing these false teachers, that they don't steal any people from him and not giving them space to promote their nonsense and steal his people. And so the Ephesian church is rightly praised and commended for hating what Jesus hated, for their endurance, for bearing with being persecuted for Jesus' name's sake, for not leaving the truths that John had passed to them, even in trying times when people are being killed for their beliefs. Listen, these are the people that they actually saw John ripped from them and taken to Patmos for his, for his teaching. They experienced suffering firsthand in ways that we might not ever experience, yet they remained firm in their teaching, willing to die for it. This is no small thing. They're commended for it. And yet, for all their theological acumen, for all their zealousness for truth, for all their memorizing of the great theological works of Calvin and Bavinck, their love had grown cold. Their hearts had iced over. Their, their hatred for false teachers, it turns out, wasn't motivated out of the, the right kinds of loves, but it, it was motivated by love, not a love of God, but a love of, of being right, of winning the arguments, of being precise. You know, I think if you were visitors of this church, you know, walking home afterwards, having the conversation, what did you think uh, of the church today, honey? Um, and uh, you might say, well, there were Sunday school was very precise, wasn't it? Yeah, that Sunday school was so precise. And then you go, how was the service? So it was so according to the Bible. Everything was just you know, neat and tidy and awesome. And uh, not that these are bad things. Obviously, we want to be precise. But then you might, after noticing the precision, you might ask, but did anyone smile? Was there any joy in the room? Did anyone actually love God, do you think? Was anyone heart stirred? Do they actually know God or do they just know a lot about God? This is, this is our temptation. We love our theological precision. And I think it's correct that we should, that, 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 and we would be commended for it. But what does all the doctrinal precision in the world mean if you have not love? Friends, it's a noisy gong. It is meaningless and it is worthless. In fact, our voice in this world becomes just a background noise of annoyance. And we become the ones who, who just like to argue, but who struggle to actually love anyone at all. And in doing so, our witness, our light, is actually in danger of going out because if we have not love, we have nothing to offer this world. If we have not love, we have nothing to offer this world. In fact, here he, we find that he would actually snuff our light out. And so Jesus comes to them, praising them for their endurance, for their precision, for their intolerance of false teachers, this is good. But he also says, your theological precision alone is not enough, friends. To follow this lampstand analogy further that he have here, it's like having this beautiful wax candle with all sorts of designs sitting on a table unlit. Right? It's, it's in the fire of love that, that we find our light, and this is what we need. We need hearts in love with Christ. And the thing that makes the knowledge of God beautiful is actually love. And there's only one way to have our hearts warmed again, to have our, our candles lit again, thawed again, and it's to be pursued by Christ. This is the second thing we see here, that Jesus pursues the church for their intimacy. That Jesus, Jesus pursues the church for their intimacy. Look with me at verse four. He says this, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. 
Imagine John for a second. If you're, if you're a parent, you can imagine maybe someone saying this about, to you about your child. His heart must have dropped when he heard this. It's like, not, not my people, not my church, not my people who can rightly discern doctrine, not my people who heard my teaching about the love of God over and over and over again, not, not the Ephesian church. This can't be right. But yes, the Ephesian church. They had lost their first love. They had prized their knowledge over their love and they would let their love grow cold. Isn't this kind of what happened to the, to the Pharisees in the first century too? They were so busy keeping the rules that they forgot why they were keeping the rules in the first place. And friends, if you think this couldn't happen to us here or to you personally, I might caution you that if it happened to the people that the apostle John discipled, right, John who wrote the gospel of John, who saw Jesus transfigured, who was one of his best friends, who witnessed his death and resurrection, if it happened to the people that the apostle John pastored, it could happen to us too. So what do we do with this warning? This, this, this warning, what do we do with it? I think first, I think we need to remember, what is the image before us here constantly? The image before us is Jesus in the midst of his lampstand, which is the church. So the image is this, Jesus tending to the lampstand, tending to that candle that the flame might not go out. That although they had forgotten Jesus, Jesus had not forgotten them. Jesus is pursuing them. Jesus is loving them. Even though they haven't been returning that love, it is Jesus' pursuit of us in the midst of our failures that ends up reanimating our love, that fans the flame of love. And this is what he says to them as he's shepherding, as he's pursuing. This is what he says to them so that their love would return. Because he doesn't want it to stay this way. He wants it to return. This is what he says in in verse five, it says, remember therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. Kind of gives us these three things to, to do for us, that, to pursue us, that we might have our hearts warmed again. He says, remember, repent and redo. So first, remembrance. Jesus is saying, listen, remember why you loved him to begin with. Remember your love from the beginning. So why do we love Jesus? Well, 1 John 4 tells us that we love because he first loved us. We loved him because he pursues us and loves us. Remember. This first remembrance is to remember he loves you. You know, and, and Paul wrote to this same people. He wrote to the Ephesian church. He said that before the foundation of the world, God, knowing that their love would grow cold sometimes, you know what he said? He said he set his love and affection on those people. He said, in love, I predestined you for love. Jesus is saying to this church and to us, that listen, if your love has grown cold, remember, you were loved by the Father. Before the foundation of the world, before you could ever imagine returning love to him, he loved you. Remember, the Father knows that your love sometimes grows cold, and yet he loves you anyway. He knew this would happen to the Ephesian church, and yet he died for them still. While we were his enemies, he did this, that we might become his friends, that we might be his beloved bride. It is his love that melts our hearts. Remember his love. There's this beautiful truth in this that we're not defined by what we know or don't know, thankfully, because we'd be in trouble, but by the one who loves us. That's what defines you. And his first words that Jesus gives to them about how to correct this problem isn't just to do better, 
isn't to suck it up. Jesus comes pursuing them with the gospel. The gospel which says, you are my beloved, full stop. Remember this truth. Remember his love. And when we remember this love, we are like the, we're like the Grinch who finally experienced love and his heart grew you know, three times. This is what happens to us. Remember his love. Secondly, we're called to repent. There's a call to repent. You know, Jesus in his pursuit of his people calls them to repent. And in the Bible, repentance isn't just stop doing this thing, stop believing this thing, but it's about what you're starting to do and believe instead. From going one direction to going another. And Jesus is saying to the church, listen, don't just remember me, but come back to me. Set your affections on me. Return my love. Because I love you, love me back. Jesus comes and says, listen, you are, you are mine. Give me your love. Which, you know, it can sound selfish. This is kind of this, this jealousness to God and his love for his people. But this is him actually protecting his people because every other lover will devour you. But Jesus is the one that exalts you, that glorifies you. Jesus is the jealous lover who's not jealous out of envy or insecurity. He has everything he needs. It's out of his love and self-giving nature to protect the ones he loves from wandering into evil and destruction. Return to his love. Return affections to him. This is the second thing. So we're told to remember he loved us first. So to return that love back to him. And finally, to, to redo. He says, you know, do the things you did at first. You know, often in, in marriage counseling, when couples are struggling uh, with one another, the, the, the first bit of advice you give is, well, what did, what did life look like when you guys fell in love with each other to begin with? What did you do? What, were you, what did you do for fun with each other? What were those dates night, date nights like? What, what was it like to fall in love? Well, do those things again. Redo them. Go back to the beginning, so to speak. And as you do this, you know, your heart begins to follow your actions as you remember your love. This isn't to say that this transformation will be quick. You know, sometimes when there's conflict, the, the furniture just needs to be rearranged a little bit, but sometimes you need a complete renovation. These things take time. Do the things you did at first. Spending time with the Lord. Doing the works of loving your neighbor, not just yourself. Do the things you did at first when your heart was warmed by the gospel for the first time. But, you know, because this work that we're talking about here can be really hard. It can be tempting just to give it up. To think to ourselves, listen, I can't do it. My, my, I think my heart might be actually too cold for this. And maybe I don't care enough anymore to let this actually do something for me. But friends, let me tell you this. As long as the tomb is empty, and as long as Christ is in your midst pursuing you, you can do this. We don't overcome and, and, and become conquerors because of our strength, but because of he who went before us. Because of he who lives within us. And if he can conquer death, if he can conquer the grave, then he can raise our dead hearts to new life as well. So we're called to seek him. To ask him to do this work and he will. I promise you, he will do this for you if you ask. You know, I, I can't promise you much, unfortunately. I can't tell you, listen, your life's going to be great. Just follow Jesus. I can't say that there's not going to be any more suffering. Typically your suffering happens because you follow Jesus, I can't promise you're going to live some long life. Jesus didn't live a long life. I can't promise you a roof over your head or that you'll never be hungry. Jesus himself grew hungry and did not have a roof over his head. And Jesus never promised these things to us. But what did he promise to you? He promised, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. 
I will give you rest. Come to me if you're burdened, all whose affections have grown cold, and I will give you life. I will give you love. And as he does this, as he gives you life and love, you and I become life and light to the world, to everyone around us. Because it's not the it's not the church's perfection or her lack of doubt at times or her struggles at times that set us apart from the world. It's not our perfections that make us unique. I don't have to probably convince anyone in this room of that. But it's our continual remembrance, repentance, and doing that marks us as God's people. And this work happens because Jesus is in our midst, pursuing us, calling to us that we might return. And in this, there is a warning here, that if we don't repent, that if we don't return to our first love, then we are exposed as the false teachers. And if exposed, then Jesus says here that he will remove his lamp from us. Which whenever Jesus talks about these things, it's always frightening. And uh, if you are frightened by this, know this. Jesus is speaking about those who, when they hear these kinds of warnings about love, their reaction is like, hmm, meh. Right? These are the people who react with indifference to Jesus' call to us, to Jesus' warning. And if that is you, I, I would encourage you to heed this warning that you may be exposed and she may return to him. But if you are here this morning, you sense within your heart that, listen, my love has grown cold. That maybe it's what I'm offering to Jesus and my worship and witness is nothing compared to his worth. That he is far greater than anything I'm able to give him. This is, a, this is a good place to be, to recognize this means that the spirit of God is at work in your heart. This isn't a something that self-righteous people feel or experience. But if your heart breaks for what was lost, for the love in your heart that is cool, Jesus is here to pursue you, to warm your heart that you might inherit this tree of life that's waiting for us. This tree that was once forbidden is now waiting for us to come and eat from her branches. The, the life that was once promised and taken from Adam and Eve is actually now given to you and I freely through Christ. Christ who became the tree of life as he died, cursed on the tree, but rose from the dead, restoring what once was lost. And now we get the taste of that tree as we feast on him. Life is found in him. So I bid you come. Taste of this fruit. Remember his love which was shown to us on the cross. Return to him. There's this beautiful truth that we don't have to pretend to have it all together. We don't need to cover our nakedness. He sees us. He sees you in your struggles. He sees you in your highs and your lows. He's not scared of them. It's in those places he comes pursuing you that you might have life in him. He loves you. And it is his love that warms and rewarms and rewarms our hearts over and over again. So remember it. Return to it and live out of that, that our light may grow and shine in all the world. Amen. Pray with me. Merciful God of love, I pray that you would warm our hearts to you. That you would help us to be a people who help each other to remember, to repent, and to redo these things. That is just our cycle of life together as a community. That we're a people who strive to, to not let our, our love grow cold, and when it does, that we come running back to you. Do this work in us, we pray, by the power of your spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen.